0: Hello, and welcome to News Underground, with a special edition for the Conference of World Affairs happening here at CU Boulder. Today, we have Maya Averbach from Mexico, freelance journalist based out of there. And today, we're here to talk a little bit about her experience as a freelance journalist and a story she wrote recently, finding a way to America. Anyways, hello. Thank thank you for being so much for coming on down. Hopefully, uh, everything's been going all right with uh, CWA recently
1: amazing. I've heard all kinds of panels on everything from uh, DACA to the rise of new modes of uh, thought, uh, to populism, to uh, the changing climate and the melting in the Arctic. It's been really amazing.
0: It's great to hear. It's great to hear that you're able to go and spirit some of the uh, other panels that are going on as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so anyways, so what will be the topic of your panels here at the CWA? What are you uh, expecting you to talk about?
1: I'm an immigration reporter. I'm originally from New York, but now based in Mexico City. So I will be speaking about global migration, refugees and asylum, some about the hazards of international journalism, which really affects a lot of my Mexican colleagues, and also about the the wall.
0: Interesting, interesting. Um, Hazards of international journalism. Uh, What do you mean by that? I'm a little curious.
1: Journalism is an incredibly dangerous profession for a lot of people. Um, I, as an international journalist, um, am under far less risk than a lot of my colleagues, but Mexico is one of the most dangerous countries in the world to be a journalist. There are killings of journalists every month, practically, Um, whether those are journalist activists, newspaper writers, radio journalists. and it's often because they're covering issues such as organized crime or local government, and that's the way in which they're silenced. And it's an issue that doesn't really make international headlines often, um, but is, is a, a huge stain on what is happening in the country.
0: All right, and then you also talked a little bit about also bringing up the wall as well. Uh, what, what do you plan on speaking about when it comes to that? seeing as it's kind of a big issue, kind of like big topic issue recently?
1: You know, I think that um, my main issue is immigration and asylum, right? And the wall exists in some stretches of the border, right? And what it has done in part, the wall and the security behind it, um, you know, is funnel migration to different parts along the border. Migration is always going to happen. It will happen in different degrees. Perhaps the populations that are coming are going to shift over time, as we've seen, but the actual physical barrier itself seems like a, a debate over something symbolic rather than something that's gonna prevent that migration. And like we can see that especially now because so many of the people who are migrating are people who cross the wall or cross in stretches where there is no wall and hand themselves into border patrol and seek asylum. Um, and there are record numbers of people doing that, which is not to say that there are record numbers of people crossing, but then more and more people are taking those steps more and more people are families, and so people are within their right when they are already on U.S. territory to seek asylum. And so the wall can't really prevent that because you can go over it, you can go under it, you can go through it, uh, you can pay off someone to let you through. And at the point that you're in the U.S. and you are seeking assistance to prevent yourself from being deported to a country where you are at grave risk, the wall's not going to do anything at all.
0: So it's kind of like a it's it's not as effective as some people might think it is or.
1: No, it absolutely will not be effective. Even if they were to c- construct it all along the border. That does not change the basic laws that the U.S. has in place that, um, you know, are based off of UN conventions um, and are there um, to establish international obligations to people who are under grave risk. Um, and what it essentially says is if someone shows up on your territory, um, and there's a threat to their life or freedom in the place that they are coming from, you can't deport them there immediately. Um, you have to go through a process with them. They have the right to request to not be deported.
0: All right, interesting. So there's a lot of international law there, definitely.
1: Yeah, so the, um, the basis for sort of contemporary law as it relates to refugees is the 1951 UN convention, which comes out uh, in the aftermath of World War II meant to sort of address what happened in Europe at that time and displacement there and it's then expanded in 1967. Um, and the US later on becomes a signatory to that protocol and develops its own you know, uh, national laws related to refugees and asylum seekers. And so um, you, know, you could frame the question as being about who should the US protect, but really now the question is who is the US under obligation to protect based off its own laws? Sometimes that's an arbitrary decision um, just in the sense that it can depend on who the judge is. It depends often on what country you're from. the US. has a sort of political preference. Um, it is much more welcoming of people coming from countries where it is um, the countries the governments are not favorable to the US and it is uh, from other countries. Um, and so there's a lot that goes into them, sort of asylum decisions. Um, and yet the fundamental laws hasn't changed yet, which is why a wall can't do much to stop an asylum seeker who's coming here to seek help.
0: Interesting, interesting. Um, so you of course covered these topics. I'm kind of curious about some of the experiences you've had um, while covering these topics and kind of seeing um, these situations. Uh, we did mention a little bit earlier the story you wrote, Finding Way to America, in which you and Kevin Sullivan Um, followed a migrant family from Honduras as they made their way to the U.S. Um, I was kind of curious, what was that experience like? What was it kind of like following them and seeing how things progressed for them as they made their way through?
1: So that particular story was about uh, a woman named Ingrid who uh, was coming to the U.S. as part of one of the migrant caravans. It was the first big caravan last year. Um because a relative word we're talking about some fifteen hundred people who started coming uh to the u s together. They started walking um and um the importance of that was really that migration that at many points and still continues to be hidden for the most part was something visible, and people use the caravans as a tactic for safety as a way of saying let's group together and then Um, we're gonna be safer than if we try to go by ourselves because it's incredibly risky to try to cross Mexico undocumented, Um, especially if you're a person with small kids, right? And so this is a story about this woman named Ingrid who was part of one of those caravans um, who suddenly finds herself in the midst of this incredible media firestorm because the president has decided that the caravans must be stopped and she's there because her family has been directly threatened. she had a brother who was killed um and uh you know part of the issues is that then uh the gangs in the, the area uh start to target her and her family and um find her youngest her oldest son in a park and and threaten him and say, "You have to be recruited by us um or we'll come after you and uh start sending messages to her and her husband and there's a pretty typical sort of situation for someone coming from Honduras and um, an incredible hardship that a lot of people face uh, because the gangs in the absence of sort of strong governments are really dominant in a lot of the cities especially um, and really affect people's lives. And, and they exist there because as I said, there's not a lot of job prospects there's not a lot of opportunities for young people. There's not strong government. There's incredible enough corruption. And so for some people it makes sense to join those gangs. They're incredibly powerful in your neighborhood perhaps um and they also lead to a lot of harm right um and so that is the case for this family and they we followed them through mexico um i waited with her in uh in tijuana before she handed herself because there's a metering system in place that means that people have to wait several weeks before they're allowed to seek asylum at the border um and um you know at that time Some people caravan managed to go through. She stayed with her daughter um, on the Mexico side of the border and handed herself in later after her husband. And then we went and met her and her husband where they were in New York. And they are still in the midst of their asylum process. She actually has a court date this week. Um, And that's part of the uncertainty of these asylum stories is that you can follow someone as they cross several countries to try to have a better life for their families. and you know that in the end, um, you know, if we look at the statistics going back to 2012 or so, that some 80% of people from Central America are going to lose their asylum cases. And if you don't have a lawyer, um, it's even more likely that you're going to lose your case. And that's part of the difficulty and the hardship of, of trying to understand what will happen to these people who have given up everything in order to try to get to the U.S. Please
0: a very big risk um, associated with uh, the, only the chance of a reward, really.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't call it a reward, right? Oh, it's Sorry, it's, um My apologies. No, I mean, like, I think that that is right. Like, I think that is the sort of language that is frequent right now, right? What are people coming for? The, to take advantage of a system or for some sort of benefit or for some sort of reward? And so it's important to talk about that language, right? The way that people will frame it to you is... I'm looking for a better opportunity for my kids. I can't stay where I was. So I'm going to go somewhere else where I have a family member. In this case, her father, right, is in the US. And so she goes and stays with him because at the point that you are about to lose your house, about to lose your job, you're no longer safe where you are. It makes a lot of sense to try to go to a place where someone can house you and where someone can provide for you temporarily while you're trying to reestablish your life.
0: Interesting. it's kind of like making the way to a place where you know you can, where there's a better chance of just kind of being able to have somewhere to live, like with family members.
1: Yeah. And like, if in the long run it works out, this means that her children, I guess three kids, are going to have a far better time. They'll be bilingual. They will have an education. They will have job prospects in the U.S. potentially. But this, she still has to get through the asylum system. And we know that her chances are not great, as they are for anyone.
0: I apologize for my misuse of the language earlier.
1: No, no, but... it's not a misuse. It's like it's part of like the, we don't have language for this, right? Like the, the, it's all a debate over uh, whether we should call it looking for a better life, whether we should call it looking for jobs, whether we should call it looking for rewards. Like there are, it's really important to debate that language.
0: Very uh, Not really something I had thought about before, but it's very eye-opening. Thank you for that. Sure. Definitely. But um. so with this, so you followed this one family. Was there any other kind of experiences or incidents you saw along the way as you made your way through? Was there anything that really kind of stood out during the whole process of the story to you?
1: I think um, I the fact that people will take their stuff, put it in a backpack, take a stroller, and just start walking it has become almost normal, it seems they saw the news now. And it happens all over the world, but it's really incredible to see. It's incredible to see thousands of people just walking down the side of the highway um, and not having a great sense of exactly where they're going to land up, but generally walking north and saying, this is worth my risk. and. Uh, you, you know, that means arriving blistered at different towns. That means suffering heat stroke. That means getting sick along the way. Um, that means, you know, trying to appease your children while they're walking. Um, and I, yeah, I won't forget that. I've now seen it several times as caravans became more commonplace. I think they'll continue to happen. It's important to say they are not responsible for the vast majority of asylum seekers who we see showing up on the border. Um, many of those people are coming through other means. Many of those people are probably paying smugglers with borrowed money so that they can avoid having a trip that lasts weeks and weeks. Um, and that's an important thing to discuss as well. But um, the visibility of that sort of migration that Ingrid went through is, is, I think, something that will really stay with me.
0: Interesting. So it's kind of like, more, there's no real specific incident. It's just the whole, um, the whole experience as a whole is what kind of stands out. Just the kind of just what, ha, what you just, the whole experience is what really stood out. There was never kind of a specific incident.
1: Um, I will say on the on the following caravan I went on, there was one moment where I was interviewing someone on the side of the highway. Uh, We'd already heard about the caravan, already had relative who'd gone on the first one, um, and who's was trying herself. And while I was talking to her, her kids were trying to get a ride and her toddler ran into the street and got hit by a van and survived. But there was a moment while they were rushing him to the Red Cross where they weren't sure exactly how severe it was. It ended up being that he hurt his arm, but he was fine. Um, that family messaged me today. They're still in southern Mexico. They're still awaiting a refugee process in Mexico. It's equivalent of like the asylum process in the US, but in Mexico. Mexico's turned into a country that has received thousands of people. I think the projection is that it might receive as many as 50,000 asylum applicants this year. Um, and often people turn to that means because they don't know what else to do because they can no longer keep traveling cause like in the case of this family. It's uh, incredibly difficult to watch a parent in the moment when their child has gone through an accident and also wonder if the fact that I was interviewing her, which means her attention was directed towards me and not towards her child, is a factor in that accident. Um, those types of things happen all the time because migration is dangerous, because people don't have documents, so they do ride trailers, they ride trucks. they uh walk they are smuggled all of which are potentially dangerous
0: I'm very sorry to hear about that I, that incident that's never good to hear about but and but it does kind of show how it is kind of a dangerous process as you said
1: Yeah I mean I think that's the least of it right like far more severe things happen to people who are migrating there's thousands of people who have disappeared right and their parents are waiting to have news of them and They might be in forced labor conditions. They might be in prisons in Mexico. They might have been killed. Like, an incredible number of things might have happened to them, but there isn't really a system of search in place. Mexico does have a commission that is now supposed to be helping families locate those missing loved ones, but it basically has a tiny budget, and uh, it's not an issue of priority at the moment. And so you just try to understand, though, While talking to those families, um, what is it to receive a last phone call from a relative who is trying to get to the U.S. and then have them not respond for the following 10 years and, and not have any means of accountability, not be in a position in your own society where you can turn towards your own government and say, help me look for my kid."
0: Do you feel like there's a lot of um, issues with the with um, laws in the countries that also hurt people who are trying to migrate through? Even if it's they're just passing through, do you feel like laws in those countries can sometimes hurt them as well?
1: I mean, Mexico, like the U.S., deports thousands of people each year. Um, there's a whole debate right now because there's a new Mexican government over whether that government will be more humanitarian or not. Uh, The government of Andrés Manuel López Obrador started at the beginning of December. Um, And so far, deportations have been down, but he's also under incredible pressure from the Trump administration to prevent migrants from coming. And not hidden pressure, but blatant pressure. I mean, Trump tweeting to say, Mexico better stop these caravans. I'm going to give Mexico one year to try to sort this problem out. And we do see the consequences of that. We do see detentions um, in recent weeks have gone up in Mexico. Um, and that's not to say that Mexico doesn't have also a humanitarian arm to try to help those people. Um, you can seek asylum in Mexico. You can get a humanitarian visa. But then will allow you to travel in the country there's an expansion of jobs programs so that people in Central America can go and work in southern Mexico. Um, that doesn't mean that Mexico is not also a country that actively deports people.
0: So definitely a lot of uh, legal issues when it comes to migration as well. Um, do you feel like you faced any kinds of issues like that as a journalist while you were covering these? Do you feel like, as we talked a little bit about how international journalism can be dangerous, do you feel like you faced any of these dangers yourself or faced, any of these, um, faced anything, kind of any issues of your own trying to cover?
1: Yeah. Um... I I specifically have not, Um, Mm -hmm. but that is also because I'm working in collaboration with colleagues and when there are major news events, there are a lot of colleagues on whom you can rely for rides, for um, sharing housing, for having your back and and tracking your location. Um, The real major issue with journalists at the moment is that Um, There are journalists who have been denied entry to Mexico after covering the caravan, specifically photographers, and not photographer activists, but rather photographers who worked for AP, who worked for the New York Times, who were then barred entry into the country, along with a list of um, activists and lawyers who also work on immigration affairs. Um, It's a great story in The Intercept by Ryan Devereaux about that. Um, And that was rather unprecedented, right? These are people who tried to fly into the country again to cover another caravan and were suddenly not allowed to go through. Um, And there's an ongoing conversation about um, exactly to what extent U.S. government action is responsible for that and exactly to what extent Mexicans were involved. Uh, Many of the people who were affected are those who were taking photos of border crossers in Tijuana, people who were climbing over the wall and handing themselves into border patrol. Uh, And so for me, as a journalist, the fact that a country can all of a sudden decide that you are persona non grata and you can no longer do your job um, is troubling.
0: Definitely seems troubling. Um, if you don't mind, mind me asking, you mentioned that there was a lot of photographers who were barred. And I just wanted to ask a little more of why photographers? I, it, It's understandable that they get a lot of photos, but is there any reason why there's much more focus on them? or?
1: I don't know that there's necessarily much more focus. There's a list of people who were sort of um, uh, selected for additional scrutiny, um, who are now put through secondary screening when they crossed the border to the US. Um, for those same people, it was, it was difficult to enter Mexico. It just happened to be, I think, from what I understand, that they showed their passports to Mexican police, had their passports taken photographs of and were put on this list. Um, which a local station in California uh, obtained a copy of. And so you can look at it online and and see a portion of it, at least. But um, I think they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, essentially.
0: Do you feel like, do you know of any other journalists who have gone through these kinds of troubles while trying to cover this issue or cover these, um, cover currently the current kind of crisis going on down there? do you know of anything like that, or?
1: I mean, I think there are other people who have gone through additional scrutiny while trying to do the same job. Obviously, there are other hardships. um Friends of mine who have gone to Central America, who are going into territories where there is cartel activity, or whether there, where there is gang violence, and who have to be extra careful in order to cover those issues. And sometimes that goes wrong. Sometimes they have to leave um, a split seconds notice. Um, because they're trying to cover things that are illicit. They're trying to cover pretty powerful organizations. Um, And so that is always a risk. Although covering the government is also a huge risk. If you are trying to point fingers at local officials for things like corruption, uh, that often doesn't involve for journalists. And just referring back to the conversation about the murder rate of journalists in Mexico. Um, And so that's an ongoing conversation. It's probably also the reason why there are gaps in coverage, why we know that tons of migrants are smuggled through Mexico and they have to be paying off Mexican officials, which also happens in the U.S. border. I'm not to say that this is a Mexico-specific issue, but rather that that level of corruption is poorly documented in part because uh, documenting corruption is incredibly dangerous in Mexico.
0: we're very glad for all the work that you and your colleagues do in helping to shed light on these issues. Thank you. Um, If you don't mind me asking just a little more about journalism in general, I was kind of curious, what's it like being a freelance journalist? Um, Do you feel like there's any kind of differences from being just from other fields of journalism or other styles of journalism? Uh, Is there anything specific that you enjoy about it?
1: Um, I think that you have incredible freedom as a freelancer. I can cover whatever I want. That doesn't mean someone will always publish it, but that I can go wherever I want on my own time, when I want, and say, today I'm interested in covering the caravans. Today I'm interested in covering people who've been returned. Today I'm interested in covering uh, language issues in asylum. Today I want to take a break and cover something totally unrelated that's actually about like culture. And um, I love that freedom. I think it's a gift. Um, I think that and um, it's not that sustainable for a lot of people. Uh, you don't earn very well as a freelancer usually. Um, and uh, you also have to work really hard to get editors to agree to take your work, to have them give you feedback uh, for them to come to rely on you. And that takes time to build those relationships. Um and the news cycle is fickle, as with any news organization, there can be issues that you think should be covered that are not gonna make it onto the front page even though you think they're important and you can advocate for them and you can fight for them. Um, but your interests may not always align with what the audience of the set of newspapers want since the editors are deciding. Um and so it's an up and down profession. I mean, sometimes you're gonna have a ton of work and then for a month you'll have nothing and you have to use that time to think of your new project, to think of what you should be reading to be a better informed journalist, what uh, sort of TED Talks and podcasts you want to listen to, um, or sort of where you want to take the bus to where you could go and learn more. Um, yeah.
0: Have you always done freelance, or have you been involved with any other styles of journalism?
1: Um, I've been a freelancer for the last two years. And uh, three years ago, I was in college, and I worked briefly for the Toledo Blade, just a new in Ohio. Um, And other than that, I was doing independent journalism projects, working in a student magazine called The New Journal. Um, But I've essentially been a freelancer since I graduated.
0: Very nice. And do you feel like you have, and you said you had a lot of freedom there as well, Um, do you feel like that allows you to sometimes cover issues that uh, traditional newspapers might not want to cover or might not pay attention to?
1: Uh, absolutely. I think that um, I spent a lot of time covering the issues of disappearances of migrants, which was not something that was making big headlines at the time and still isn't, and I think it's usually important. I'm working on a piece now about, um, again, translation in the asylum system, rather, interpretation, uh, phone interpretation for people who are Indigenous speakers, uh, which is something I'm super interested in. What are the ways in which we try to ensure that someone who has gone through trauma, who is asking for help, can explain where they're coming from and what their context is and why they're there. Um, what are the things that are lost in translation? Um, and that is just like a personal quest of mine to try to understand. I think it's hugely important, um, but that is not sort of uh, the thing that's gonna get the most clicks on the internet, I think.
0: I as a part of it can be finding an audience. That's a struggle. Right. All right, um, What advice would you have for maybe others trying to get started as a freelance journalist? How did you get started as a freelance journalist?
1: Um, I was lucky, obviously. I had a grant from Yale that allowed me to go to Mexico and spend a uh, better part of a year trying to get my bearings as a freelancer. Um, that said, I don't think that you need that to start being a freelancer. You just need a good set of ideas you can do a lot over the phone. Um, on whatever you're interested in covering it, I think that it's a lot of emailing editors and convincing them that you've got a great idea and that they should take your story. Um, sitting down with them for coffee saying, oh, I happen to be in your city near your building. Let me convince you that you should take my story. Um, and I also think that you want a great set of clips so for people who are still in college, like write those stories that you think are going to be amazing for student publications while you still have time and take those clips of these amazing stories that you can do that you might not have time to do later and and use them uh to then go to editors and say like look i'm I'm worth taking a chance on um this is it's all about starting to build a rapport with different people and you can sometimes i've spent you know um hours and hours and hours sending pitches. I've pitched some stories 10 times before they're accepted. And you just have to take that as to being part of the profession. And so if you realize from the get-go that you're probably gonna be rejected on a story, it's worth it to still try to find the right angle, trying to find publications that would take it, and taking a gamble and just emailing over and over again.
0: So persistence is a fairly big part of it.
1: So key, it's so key.
0: Do you feel like uh, there's anything else that you'd want listeners to know? That Anything you'd want to tell our listeners or that you think they should know about?
1: Um, two things. Journalism is an amazing profession. I would recommend it to anyone. It does not actually, as my journalism professor told me when I re- graduated, um, it does not require a special skill. Anyone can do it. Because people have come at it from different directions. You might be a specialist in... Um, audio, and so you're going to write about issues that I know nothing about. Or someone who is super interested in business can write all about business. Or someone who's just studied literature, like me, is just interested in the act of writing can go and take off in a different field. So really anyone can do it. Um, I think it's a wonderful field to work in. You get to interview people all the time. You get to ask them about their stories. You then um, also, I think, take some part in the news cycle and in history and trying to document what is happening Um, and I would just encourage listeners to think of it as not a restrictive field and to think that they if they were interested could do that as well and the other thing that I would say is we are not in the midst of an immigration crisis like crisis is a word that is bandied about uh, frequently um, but that is really used in political terms Um, you know we are not at one of the high points of migration on the border right now. If you look back at the 90s, the level of um, undocumented immigration was far, far higher. The U.S. became restricted, uh, restrictive um, along its borders, um, and there was a high amount of Mexican immigration. Um, and so now what are we seeing? We're seeing more people than ever um, from Central America trying to enter the asylum system, or families than ever, Um, But it's important to think of the scale always and to say um, uh, 100,000 people last month, is that a lot, is that a little? It's the size of a small city in the US, is that a lot, is that a little? Um, And to try to put that in context and when we say, is the US a country that can take more immigrants? The answer is yes. The answer is who, the answer is when, Um, rather than suggesting that we're at a time where the system is at a breaking point. I think that's a it's a narrative that um, we hear over and over again. But you're gonna hear it in a couple of years. You're gonna hear it in a few years from now. It's repeated rather than something that is true across time.
0: Once again, apologies about the language, but that's definitely still a big eye opener, definitely about, you know, making sure to look for kind of like the political usage of those kinds of words, definitely. Absolutely. Thank you for that. No, thank you. Thank you. And uh, for anyone who would want to come and see your panel and come hear you speak or possibly ask you a few questions, when are your panel is going to be?
1: Um, I have one at 4.30 in the library that's about global migration. Um, and if you give me a quick second, I will tell you where my other panels are going to be. Um,
0: hey, no worries. We're always glad to, glad to help uh, we're always glad to hear about what you're going to be up to this week.
1: Absolutely. So I have one tomorrow on global migration. Um, and then that's at one thirty, And I have a couple on Friday, one at 9 a.m. about the hazards of international journalism, which we just talked about. And on Saturday at 10.30, I'm talking about race and being mixed race and at 1.30 about, quote, a big, beautiful wall.
0: Very interesting, very interesting. It definitely sound like interesting talks. Um, for those of our listeners who'd like to uh, go, definitely go see Maya and all the other CWA speakers this week. Maya, thank you so much for coming on down. Thank you really appreciate so much
1: for having me. Yeah,
0: we really appreciate hearing from you, and we're really glad to have you down here.
1: Great, it's great to be here. It's an awesome conference.
0: Right, perfect, well, thank you so much. All right, for all you listening, that was Radio 1190 with a special little news underground midday edition for the conference of world affairs make sure to tune back in at six for our regular show and make sure to go to some of these cwa speakers including Maya averba thank you for listening back to the music radio 1190